The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, March 25th, 2023. Rios, you seriously really need to sell this. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 38th Digest of this second volume covering Monday, March 20th through Friday, March 24th, 2023. Mailbag Monday, a look at my latest DCBS order from books that shipped at the end of February and throughout most of March. Just some quick thoughts here as I look at uh, what came in this package. And I'm also going to give you two reviews, two reviews of some indie titles uh, that I've been looking forward to. Perhaps the thing that I've noticed uh, right away is that as I start to... Uh, read more on the DC Universe app. My list of books that come in every package, which I usually get once a month, uh, is starting to shrink because I'm not collecting as many DC titles if I'm just going to read them on the app. And um, I've been trying to limit myself to no more than like $50 after taxes uh, I'm still trying to look out for certain collections maybe that I'm interested in uh, or some small press books that I want to read or support. Uh, but yeah, my list is shrinking and there's not a lot at all. Well, there's nothing from Marvel and I don't really see anything coming down the road um, that, I, that I'll be interested in for Marvel either. So it's like, yeah, this this is, as I get these um, packages, uh, you know, there's not a lot in it to talk about, but, um, you know, I'm going to find some things here. So, all right, here is just uh, most of what I got. Um, still getting Justice Society of America. I got issue number three, Black Adam number eight, because, again, I like to support Christopher Priest when I can, although I did not pick up... Uh, the physical copy for Superman Lost. Even though I want to read that maxi series, I'm just going to read that on the app. Um, I haven't been hearing a lot about Justice Society of America, and it makes me wonder, you know, do they matter? Um, will they cross over to the larger DC Universe in terms of what's going on with Dawn of DC? And it makes me think, you know, that Golden Boy card that Jeff Jones, Jeff Johns has had for so long, maybe that's expired, right? I don't, I don't mean in terms of writing. I just mean in terms of how much his books affect the larger DC universe. I mean, there for a long time, he was, you know, to use the term, the showrunner for DC Comics. And it just seems like, even though this title seems like it's going to be good, and, and is a worthy successor for Justice Society of America, and it, and it is doing interesting things, and the team is back again, and they're using younger heroes and older heroes. Um, I don't know how much it's going to uh, incorporate the other part of the DC Universe, so I guess we'll just have to see, even though it has some really interesting mysteries to it. Also in this shipment, I got Saga 62, it sure would be nice if there were other titles out there at other uh, publishers that had this longevity, that had this much of a fan base, that had this kind of quality writing and art. 
because it would just be nice to read something outside of the big two that is capturing the imagination. Like, sure, I know there are some good comics, but are they getting the numbers every time an issue comes out? Do they have retailers behind it? Is it just, is it something more than just a five, six, seven issue miniseries or a 12 issue maxi series? I mean, this is saga issue number 62. So I don't know. I'm sure there is. I'm sure, you know, and, and, and not a, a franchise that is made up of multiple miniseries like Hellboy, right? Like saga is a continuous series from one to 62, or if you're reading it in trades. So it would be great if, um, publishers could back a concept or maybe there's just maybe nobody's writing something that has longevity right like they just want to write a mini series or a maxi series length in hopes that the idea is good enough so that they they could sell it as a, a another property as an animation or animated series as a live action series as a movie etc from my tom king corner we have Human Target number 12, that maxi series wraps up, and we have Danger Street number 4. I will be definitely getting, as I talked about before, physical copies for Wonder Woman. Uh, I think Tom King on Brave and the Bold, most likely I'm going to read that digitally on the app, because that's that's where most of my Dawn of DC reading is going to be. From my Titans corner, we have Titans United Blood Pact 6 of 6, so that's wrapped up. Uh, we have DC Inc. Teen Titans Robin, that little softcover graphic novel, and then I also got Nightwing 101. You can listen to the latest Tower episode that I released. That's right, I released a Tower episode last week. If you want to hear a little bit more about that young adult reader line for Teen Titans and just a whole bunch of Titans news in general, it's a pretty good episode. Rounding out what I want to talk about from this package, I have two titles from smaller presses. Uh, one is called Banshees, number one from Scout Comics, and the other one is called The Gimmick from Ahoy Comics. And both of these are... Uh, have a, a, a creator on them uh, that I am super familiar with. So, for instance, Ban Banshees Number 1, which was released in February, is story by Dave Dwanch and Jessica Balboni. She also edits. And then the script is by Dwanch, who also letters. Ricardo Ficini on art. Dam on color artist, or Dom on color artist. And production is by Sean Callahan. With a cover by Tim Daniel with colors by Kurt Michael Russell, which I, I liked. I liked the cover a lot. So Dave Dwanch, uh, someone that I've known, you know, for many, many years now through CGS, had him on the Daily Rios in the early 500s, I want to say. Um, and I really enjoyed Jenny Zero. And this is a new project that he's working on for Scout Comics. And then the gimmick, which was, which was released in March through Ahoy, that is by Joanne Starr, writer, Elena Gogu, artist, Rob Steen on letters, Erica Henderson on the main cover. And Joanne Starr is uh, an acquaintance of mine from, from years back. So I wanted to support that as well. So these are the two books that I'm just going to give some thoughts about um, because I've read them 
and I want to share them with you in case they are of any interest. So Banshees is described as Jennifer's body meets Stand By Me as the ghosts of slain female college students team up to exact revenge on the serial killer that murdered them. But first, they must discover the killer's identity and the shocking truth behind their death. I called it here in my notes, it feels like a mix of Morning Glories uh, mixed with the Faculty movie by way of The Craft or Hocus Pocus. I'm not sure which one just yet. Um, uh, This is, uh, you know, so every college, every university dorm comes with some kind of story, right? Some ghost story, some myth, some legend. The college that I went to had one for one of the dorms where, since I went to a performing arts university, uh, the the talk was that a violin player hung themselves um, by use of their violin strings. And I, I don't know if that's even feasible, but that's the story, right? Um So a young girl is going to Penn State and she has some kind of history in the past uh, that might have something to do with quote-unquote ghosts. And she she meets a roommate who tells her about the legend of this dorm. And then by the end of the issue, there's a revelation about some of those murdered college students. Um, You know, that they... it, it, It turns the book it kind of gives it an even more supernatural feel by the time that you get to the end. If you think back to the title, the title of the Banshees, that'll give you a, kind of a clue about what's going on. Uh, there's a lot of types of... Uh, I, I went and looked up a definition of horror movies, like different types of horror movies, and I feel like this title fits in with a lot of them, right? It's got slasher elements, supernatural, psychological comedy possibly body horror sure um the artwork is pretty good i actually i i thought the artwork was probably the strongest thing about the book um as well as the some of the packaging as well um i read a review that they did not like the artwork and that they thought when the camera pulls away and you get some far away shots they thought that the figure work got a little too abstract a little too blobbish um that definition was lost when they were trying to show more of a certain scene and i I actually really disagree i look at that as cartooning right there's a very real way to do shorthand for visuals if you already establish your characters but say they're running down a hallway you don't have to be super super specific about that character way off in the distance because you've already shown them, right? And this artwork is not trying to be 100% real. So, uh, yeah, I disagree with with, with that review. Um, if I had to give some kind of description of what the artwork um, felt like to me, I don't mean this 100%, but there's a little bit of the styling of, say, someone like Brett Blevins in this artwork. Not a lot. It's just, just little hints, little ways that the anatomy walks, you know, when someone walks in a, on a page and some of the figure work, some of the, um, the, the use of, of, of distance and perspective. There's just something in it that I was like, oh, it kind of reminds me of a much 
more modern take on like Brett Blevins for whatever that means. Uh, the story is okay. It's it's kind of a little um, right now. The setup feels familiar, and it's really about what we do with this concept by the the last page and what I assume in the other issues as well. Some of the dialogue comes across as standard teen horror, teen comedy, uh, and I don't mean com. It's not for Dave Dewan's book. It's not really really comedy. It's but there's some some funny bits here and there. Um, I think because Dewanch is an artist himself. If he is putting in some some cues in the script for uh, for the artist for Ricardo, that's probably why uh, the 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 story flows nicely visually, even if some of the dialogue uh, feels um, sparse. I guess you could say I wanted a little more meat out of the dialogue. I wanted a little more little more stuff, but maybe that's not the goal of this book. Who knows? Um, if I take a look at Scout Comics, I, I haven't read a lot from Scout Comics, but I was looking at the masthead, and the CEO is Brendan Deenan, a name that I am a little familiar with. So Brendan was the writer on Scatterbrain from Marcosia, which was a title that I read way back like in the CGS days. Also one of the co-writers on Flash Gordon when it was coming out from Arden uh, Publishing. And we used to get a lot of CGS ads in that title. So I have a bunch of those issues in my collection. And also was the writer for one of DC's Young Readers book books called uh, Green Arrow Stranded. And then James Pruitt, who is the publisher, I was like thinking, wait a minute, that name's familiar. Actually, it's not familiar. I'm familiar with his twin brother, which I didn't know this was a thing, Joe Pruitt, from Caliber Comics, again, from the old early CGS days where Caliber, you know, Joe and Caliber sent us a whole bunch of stuff and we did a bunch of interviews with them. So um, the book itself has some really good production. You know that this comic is going to last, like the the page quality is is pretty good. Um, It's $4.99. I probably would have taken a little bit of a cheaper print quality if it meant the book could have been $3.99. But again, I don't know what their economics are. You know, maybe they need to, need to price it higher because it's not going to have a bigger print run. Who knows? The second issue is going to be out in May. Apparently, there's also a tie-in with uh, a beer can <laughs> or a beer, uh, I don't know, company or something like that. Um, I don't know if this title is going to be for everybody, but I'm certainly going to continue to support it. And then the gimmick, uh, the blurb for the gimmick is pro wrestling champ Shane Bryant has a ring persona uh, that's forgettable. He's a nice guy, but his secret is more colorful. He has super strength. And when he punches a fist straight through his opponent's brain in front of 2.4 million horrified viewers, everything changes. Now Shane needs a new gimmick and a new life. This story, uh, I really liked. I really liked the artwork. I liked the premise of the story. Um, you know, he so he punches this guy in the head and kills him, and then he has to go on the run. Not only does he have super strength, but he can fly as well. So he goes on the run 
with the help of another wrestler. They go down to Mexico, and the whole idea is that's where he's going to come up with a new gimmick to hide out from the authorities. And along the way, we meet other parts of his life that are now affected by what's going on. First of all, he has a toddler son who is also very strong, and the mother, I don't know if it's his wife or not, she wants to find him. We also have a daughter of the person who was killed, the daughter of the heel, and she has not been around her father for many, many, many years. She doesn't even know who he is, but she's also going to get involved, and then there are some FBI agents as well. One of the things I liked was as it opens with a wrestling match, you got a lot of banter before the match and during the match. And I know that that's a thing, right? Like I know that they talk to each other. Um, so it didn't feel out of place. I'm not super familiar with wrestling, but I've seen enough amateur wrestling, um, oddly enough, through someone um, that I met Joanne Starr from. So there's this weird sort of connection uh, so it's authentic and it's authentic because Joanne was part of a wrestling circuit. So it all kind of feels very authentic. I thought the dialogue had some nice ease to it. It felt conversational, but it felt worth, um, it felt like the characters made sense while they were talking to each other and, and that they were making sense. I should say the artwork really nice. I, I enjoyed the artwork a lot. Uh, Elena is, uh, an artist from Greece and then the packaging for $3 and 99 cents. So, so this has, um, um, you know, I, I'm, again, I'm not familiar with Scout. I'm not familiar with Ahoy comics, which the gimmick is through. So I can think about these things and talk about these things. Right. So the packaging on this is not as thick as what, what's on Scout, but it's still pretty good. And it has that just like a slightest grain to it, which I like. What's weird is I think the cover is thinner than the pages just by a little bit. I can't really tell, but they all feel kind of the same. Um, but I, I preferred this packaging. I prefer, first of all, $3.99, a little cheaper. Um, but this is how I kind of like my comic to, to feel, right? I know that's probably weird to talk about. So if you're into horror, then you have the Banshees. If you're into wrestling, then you have the gimmick. And these are two genres of, of storytelling that I rarely talk about. So I thought I would just take this chance here uh, on this Monday segment to, to give them a little love. TV Tuesday, returning to Walking Dead Season 11 sooner than I thought. I didn't realize when I left off at Episode 14 of this final season that I should have kept going two more episodes through to 16 because that's where this season took a, a six-month break between April and October of 2022. So I should have kept going two more episodes. It just felt like episode 14 was a nice break. Uh, but anyway, here we are. My thoughts on episodes 15 and 16, which are more or less a two-parter to end that first quote-unquote half. And really, it goes a long way to escalate things for the remaining eight episodes and for the remainder of 
this series. Um, these episodes are bringing to a head the events from last time I talked about the show, things like what what's the Commonwealth doing with Aaron and Gabriel and Daryl, you know, trying to get them to do their dirty work, uh, how things went totally south uh, when that group came across a, a new group of survivors, which Negan is now a part of, and then Maggie and her people helped out Negan against the Commonwealth, and really it's just, you know, it becomes Commonwealth versus Alexandria or Commonwealth versus Rick's people, if you want to say. And then there was trouble in the Commonwealth where Eugene and Rosita and Mercer and his sister Max are starting to realize that the governor's son, Sebastian, is into some pretty messy shit. And, you know, everybody's just realizing that the Commonwealth, no surprise, it just isn't what it seems to be. So that all leads us to episodes 15 and 16. The noose is definitely tight, tightening on this community, mostly because the character of Lance is showing his true colors and he is completely wilding out, whether it's because he wants power, uh, he's just vindictive, or some other reason. We don't really know just yet. Plus, he's doing this all behind Pamela's back. So he's kind of like Wormtongue, in a way, from Lord of the Rings, but not quite. Um, people are going to have to choose sides. It's clear that the infusion of all the characters from Alexandria is really the catalyst for all of this change, which made me think, okay, this show often has conversations about who really are the good people and who really are the bad people. And, you know, is it because of the legacy of Rick that what he was trying to do and what he was trying to do for his people has, it's all sort of resonated. And every time they come to a new community, they sort of infect this new community with their ideas and ideals. And, you know, are they the good people for that? Are they the bad people because they disrupt this quote unquote harmony? Um, ultimately, you know, you want to root for them as, as the good guys, and clearly there is just some bad crap going on. So, you know, I guess the show is answering that question. Who is good and who is bad? So in episode 15, uh, Lance does not believe Aaron and Gabriel about what happened to the Commonwealth soldiers, so he decides he's going to go check out Hilltop to see if they know everything. Plus, there's this whole thing about missing guns, which eventually just kind of goes away. Um, but really, it's because Lance knows that all of these people are in league with each other because they had a tour in one of those first 14 episodes of all those other communities like Hilltop, Alexandria, Oceanside, and both Pamela and Lance could see that these three communities really have an allegiance and really back Maggie and that just kind of pisses every pisses Lance off so I can see why he's he's doing this um this episode also brings us to way back to episode nine which ended by saying six months later with Daryl in Commonwealth uh stormtrooper uniform uh arriving at Hilltop telling Maggie to open up and now we're finally back to that moment again 
Lance doesn't find what he's looking for at Hilltop, but he does the stupid thing of trying to use Herschel, Maggie's son, for information. That's what kicks everything off. Daryl uh, draws his gun on Lance. The Commonwealth leave Hilltop, but now Lance is even more aggravated. And then he manages to run into Leah, who was the one that stole their guns in the first place. So, um, again, they don't mention the gun thing, but what Lance decides to do is he is going to use Leah to target Maggie, because she also wants Maggie dead for what Maggie did to Leah's people, who were the Reapers in the first part of this season. So, again, Lance is up to no good. Um, it do, I do get a sense, like... The writers are like, okay, we really have to start wrapping these things up. Um, maybe it's because I'm watching it in real time, and I, I know that there are only a limited number of episodes left, but I feel like the story has kind of jumped. If this was another season, we might have lived in Commonwealth for much longer. Kind of like what we did with Alexandria. I mean, we were in Alexandria for a long time before it all went to shit. Um, other things in this episode... Eugene, Rosita, Connie, her sister, they're digging digging deeper into Sebastian, into Pamela Milton. Um, they have this list of names. The woman who died in one of the previous episodes, uh, you know, that Rosita found, her name is on this list. Eugene is going to talk to Max, who is basically like Pamela's right-hand person. Um, she is the Stephanie that Eugene had contacted over a radio. That's how these two communities even met, but it was a secret. Um, and then in turn, Max talks to her brother, Mercer, to tell him that he needs to step up. You know, he needs to be the leader of this community. And he is already having major misgivings about what he's learning and what's going on and what he's learning from the Alexandria people. I'm assuming. He's going to have his moment before this all ends if he's not chewed on, you know, by some zombies. 16, it's uh, Lance versus everyone as Leah and the guards take down Hilltop, only to discover that Rick's people, they're just not easy to get rid of. I mean, they're the stars of the show, right? So, of course, they're going to survive. Um, but you really saw it in one scene in this episode where Daryl, Aaron, and Gabriel are being led away by the guard, the Commonwealth Guard, because they're inspecting all these other locations. But really, what they're doing is they're trying to take the, that trio far enough away that they can kill them. So they put them in a junkyard. All the guards start to surround them. You know, Daryl and Aaron and Gabriel, they immediately see it, and there's there's this huge shootout and the trio wins, even though they were in the middle of these guards. And that's why I keep calling them stormtroopers, because they're terrible shots. But they won, because they have to, because that's what this show is centered on. This episode is really just an episode about people trying to survive, trying to win, trying not to get cornered in, which that scene is a good example of. You have uh, Max gathering files from Governor Milton. She almost gets caught by Sebastian. 
Sebastian is trying to get out from his mother. Maggie doesn't want Herschel caught up in all of this war, so she takes the boy to Negan and his people and tells Negan that she's finally starting to trust him for saving Herschel in the previous episodes. So, you know, this theme of not wanting to get cornered in and having to survive is is everybody's feeling this way. And the show is feeling that way because it's rushing to to an ending. And then you have Leah. She's hunting Maggie. She wants payback. Um, and this is all set in this episode against a backdrop of a swarm of locusts just to give this episode one more ominous thing to it, right? Um, the showdown between Maggie and Leah was a bit over the top, but I liked it. It was fine. It's it's really just this, you know, brawl, and you feel like they are struggling, again, for survival. Daryl has to save Maggie. It's a fight that probably would have happened if Rick was still alive, but he's not, so it has to go to Maggie because she's kind of like the new Rick. It like went from Rick to Michonne to Maggie. Um, I, You know, I didn't think Maggie was going to die. Of course, I know she has a series coming up, but, you know, the weight of it just wasn't there. And the way they ended Leah's story, I mean, Daryl doesn't even mourn for her. It really shows that there's just so little time left for this show. There's an, another example of that too. When Connie and Ezekiel are gathering information with Max and Rosita, the writers decide to bring in Magda, who hasn't been seen for a long time, and Ezekiel also, because he's now quote-unquote healed from his tumor, he's in the mix as well. And it's like, you got to give them something other to do, and we might as well bring them all together. Because again, the show is ending. And then this episode ends, and this chapter ends, with Lance deciding he is just going to take it all. Alexandria, Hilltop, Oceanside. Whether he's taking it for Commonwealth, or whether he's taking it for himself, that we don't know. But we know it's not going to end well. Um, Connie writes up her article on Pamela Milton. That's now going to sow dissent and people are going to question Pamela Milton and they're going to ask about, you know, what's really going on. Um, we were told earlier on in this season that there is this sort of undercurrent where people are not happy with Commonwealth and they can see the struggle between the classes and some people have and some people have not. So we've been seeing some of that, but, and, and certainly this article will fan that flame. I wish this season would have included more of that, though, in the Commonwealth. Not just with the Alexandria people, but with the people that are actually in Commonwealth. We were shown that there's dissent, uh, in in one character and in his home, he has like all these flyers and things like that. And we were told that there's some dissent, but we, we were never really shown. Everybody's like kind of living in this bubble. And I would have liked to have seen more of that. But again, last season, they don't have enough time. So yeah, so that's where I'm at. I There's a break. I started watching the next episode, episode 17, and it has a whole new intro. And I was like, well, wait a minute. This feels very different. And when I looked, I realized, oh, there was a space. So I am going to watch the remaining episodes. And I 
I'm assuming I can watch all of them before I come back with another segment about The Walking Dead, but then that'll be it. That will be the end of Walking Dead. So those of you who've already seen it, you know what I'm in for. Um, you know, obviously I don't want to know. I surprisingly have not been spoiled by anything. I don't know who lives. I don't know who dies. I don't know what the wrap up, the wrap up of the story is. I don't even know if there is an ending. How does it relate to the comics? These are all questions I will find out soon enough. I know you can do this. I know how strong you are. Stand up to Grodd. You can do this. Please. Wednesday Comics Wednesday, Part 13, taking a look at the highly anticipated strip of The Flash by Carl Kershaw, Brendan Fletcher, Rob Lay, Dave McCaig. This has been a strip that I've been looking forward to for quite a while. You know, as I page through the anthology, uh, you know, I would see some of those strips. I don't remember, I didn't remember the story, but I remember that the artwork and uh, the creativity of this strip, uh, you know, was something that I was fond of. So uh, I'm really, really glad that uh, I got a chance to read it again. And it does not disappoint. So the Wednesday Comics Anthology was coming out in 2009. And so was Flash Rebirth. So Barry Allen had made an appearance in Final Crisis, and he was about ready to explode back into the DC Universe, and here he is in Flash Rebirth, and then eventually he'll get his own series, and that will lead to Flashpoint and everything beyond that. But they were also able to use Barry Allen for Wednesday Comics, although Carl mentioned that when he was offered this particular strip, he asked which version of the Flash should he use, and Mark Chiarello said, anyone you want to. So really, it was kind of open for him to use the Barry Allen version of the Flash. In terms of the creators, I was familiar with Carl Kershaw's work from uh, a four-issue Majestic miniseries, Teen Titans Year One, and then he would go on to do many other things, including artwork for Gotham Academy, Brendan Fletcher, I think this is his earliest work, if not the earliest work. Uh, and then he also would go on to write Gotham Academy 24, uh, in 2014. Uh, he worked on Batgirl. He worked on Black Canary. He worked on Isola and Motor Crush for Image Comics. And I'm certainly no stranger to Barry Allen The Flash, having read... Uh, uh, you know, the whole trial of Barry Allen in the 80s, and, uh, you know, I was right there for Flash Rebirth and, and his ongoing title that would come out of Flash Rebirth. So, yeah, this is just a strip that um, the artwork is just so good. The storytelling is so good. You know, Carl's artwork is something that I just really enjoy. And then the two of them working together on the story, um just managed to use the strip format so well, not only in terms of the art, not only in terms of the pacing, you know, starting off as just, you know, in strip one, it's just kind of like a, a an adventure strip for The Flash, and then there's a secondary strip on the bottom half for Iris West, and it's kind of like a romance uh, strip, if, if you will. 
Um, and then those two characters flip-flop around. One will take the lead over the other. By the end of the strip, they kind of merge. Um, there's even a Gorilla Grodd strip in the middle of all this because he's the big bad. But the way they escalate the story from just something that's very simple to something that's very complex using the strip format to tell that story is is quite thoughtful and um, I, I just I really appreciated what they did here. So let me go through some of my notes strip by strip and I'll explain some other things that I thought about this series. As I mentioned, strip strip number one, you read Flash, it's just an adventure strip against Gorilla Grodd and Iris West is bemoaning uh, that Barry Allen is was late yet again to a date that they had. And I love the coloring that they use for the Iris West portion. Uh, you can see a lot of the pixelation of color, like the old, uh, the old way of doing color for comics. In strip two, we get uh, we get a little bit of what's going on now and what will go on for the rest of the strip. There's a very real kind of like memento thing going on and time travel and Barry is phasing and he goes back 10 minutes in time. So he hopes that he can correct his mistakes with Iris. Um, in strip number three, we now have two different Barrys and they're trying to reset their actions to make things right, only to wind up in a future where they learn a little bit of information from a flash that I don't know if we've ever seen again. And I was trying to look up online as much as I could. I didn't spend a lot of time. But they meet this younger looking Flash and I'm like, okay, who is this Flash? Have we seen him before? Is is he new? Have we seen him again? So I have to do a little more research on that. Or if you're familiar, please let me know. Strip number four, the Barrys managed to go back even further. So it's like every time they try to fix this situation, they go back like another 10 minutes and another 10 minutes. We see um, we see how smart Iris is because uh, one flash in in her present time leaves the situation that uh, you know that she's getting annoyed at, but then one of the other Barrys shows up to try to fix the situation, and she automatically consents that he's not the same one; he's kind of different. And then the other flash goes and battles uh, Gorilla Grodd before the confrontation we saw in strip number one. And it's kind of clever how the two um, relate to each other and also how you can see how the story is progressing. Strip number five ends with a, uh, a bit of dialogue that says, The Flash dies today, and that's very much what almost happens in this strip. We learn Grodd's plan that he calls Flash a human particle collider and that he leaves behind a quantum singularity in the wake of his speed that Grodd is able to trap and inside it is an infant infant universe for Grodd to play God and he even says do you suppose that you could simply smash your molecules from one dimension to the next without consequence which almost sounds like that Star Trek Next Generation episode where they learn that warp drive is, uh, you know, tearing the fabric of space. It feels like a, a power level for the Flash that could come out of, you know, Snyder's Justice League. I loved it. I loved that little explanation and what Grodd was able to do with it. 
And in the Iris section, she just wants her husband to be her husband for two minutes. You know, stop racing around. And Barry says, all right, I'll give up being the Flash. Really, there's a nice parallel because what Iris is saying is not far off from what Grodd said. You know, that in Flash's wake, there is just, you know, there's consequences. And that's very much what is happening with Iris and Barry, you know, the, the disruption of their marriage. In six, uh, the flash that confronted Grodd, he is like kind of caught in between, you know, reality and non-reality. He does this thing where he vibrates so that he'll go back in time. He's he's sort of in space. He'll he'll vibrate, go back in time, and Earth, the Earth, will go back into position in its orbit below him, and then he gets caught by gravity and sucked through the upper atmosphere and he almost, you know, burns up. Uh, I don't, I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? I'm trusting that the creators are doing their flash facts due diligence, right? And trying not to just totally create science, but um, I'm sure there's some pseudoscience here, but it seems like it would also make sense. And now we have three Barrys to deal with this confrontation. And this is where we get the strip for Gorilla Grodd, where he's on his new world. He is conquering, teaching, building a gorilla city, raising a family, but he's aging as well. And he leaves behind followers to make sure that they build something so that he can return to them. And I assume this is something that, you know, as I was reading, I was like, okay, this is probably something that's going to connect to the larger story. By the time I got to strip number seven, I realized that this strip is more or less working every three strips, you know. Um, it feels like the fourth strip, uh, the seventh strip, They it feels like we're starting the next chapter, even though they don't call it that. Uh, again, we go back in time even more. Uh, there are so many flashes right now, a multitude of flashes. And there's a barrier around the location where we saw Grodd in strip number one. And uh, they have to break through this barrier. And uh, another Barry uh, decides to show up at the dinner date. He's even there before Iris is there. And that's his way of trying to fix it so that she's not waiting there for three hours. But things are going weird. He sees an ape in a waiter costume and he has uh, a nosebleed. In Strip 8, the Flashes start to take what they've learned from Grodd, and they smash the barrier, revealing a tower, most likely the tower that Grodd wanted his uh, followers to build. And it looks great. It looks like something Carmine Infantino would draw, which I really appreciate. Uh, but the nosebleeds now, everybody's having them. And uh, the end, uh, the very last panel is like the Barry that's with Iris. It feels like he's merging with the other Flashes and he's, and he's moaning out Iris. And I got this like flashback to Crisis number two where Batman sees uh, Flash going through time and, and Flash is kind of like, you know, getting destroyed and he's calling out for Iris. It was this real creepy moment, but I, I really like that. Uh, strip 9, I wrote here, oh my god, this strip is amazing. Where the creators are now taking the strip quite literally, 
and Flash's world and Bar and Iris's world and Gorilla Grodd's world. They're all merging. And in the back of this, we get all these panels of some major moments in Iris's life, but we also see their lives through the lens of real strips. So done in a peanut style, or done in Modesty Blaze, or Blondie, or Dick Tracy. And I just thought, wow, this completely elevated this strip for me right here. And it just keeps going and going. The panels, uh, the panel structure gets more and more complicated, like ripples in time. As we get to uh, strip number 12, the story gets bigger, the romance angle gets bigger, and I feel like it, from what was this very simple thing, is now this very complex thing that you can do with a Flash character, and it just, it just really takes off. Uh, strip number 10... Somehow Flash has gone 50 years forward and he meets an older Grodd who built the device that his previous uh, self told his followers to build. So it's really this older Grodd who has somehow sent information back to the Grodd that was in strip number one to figure out how to make all this happen in the first place. And you can see that their confrontation is coming to a head. Strip number 11, again... In design, in tone, in seriousness, the story is really taking off. The story explodes, and there's real high stakes. Um, Barry has to try to save Iris, and it's, you don't know if he's going to be able to, and he's stuck because he phased his body through some, you know, like a, a wall. And she ends it by saying, Barry, just look in my eyes. Look in my eyes, Barry. And then we get to strip 12, and the ending becomes about, I think, that Iris was reading this story in a paper that Barry wrote, I think, right? Because it there's a real odd jump from 11 to 12. I don't know exactly what happened. Uh, Flash stopped Grodd from learning what he was supposed to learn from that older Grodd. Um, but this is on the strip that Iris is reading. Like, she has the strip in her hand. It's very meta, right? It's almost like if we were holding Wednesday Comics, now she is actually holding Wednesday Comics. Um, there's a crossword puzzle that might have some clues to what actually happened in this story. And then the two of them go off and they're, you know, going off on a date and it ends very romantically. But it's like, I don't quite understand what happened. So my only real thought is, oh, this was something that Iris was reading, perhaps. Maybe there's something, like maybe something was reset um, because she said, you know, Barry, look at my eyes. And maybe he did something that he was able to use all that grod knowledge or what he learned about himself. And he was able to finally merge everybody and get back to a proper time. I don't know. I, it's frustrating. And unfortunately, I almost was going to put this right up there at the top with some of the other ones that I really liked, but that ending is is just too obscure, and I, 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 I probably need to read it again. I tried to look up some interviews, some reviews. Um, maybe that's the point of it. Maybe you're just supposed to get out of it whatever you want to get out of it. Um, 
but I still really, really liked this, this strip. I really did. So my rankings, um, I'm changing them up a little bit. So we got Commandy, Strange Adventures, and Metamorpho now at number one. And what I'm going to do because of the flash is create a new level. I'm kind of bumping things down. And in the secondary level is going to be the flash and also metal men because I really liked metal men um, because of the artwork and because of the story. But, you know, as I think about it, it feels like it's more on the level of flash where it just missed the mark a little bit. Whereas those other three, I just really enjoyed. And I think they, I think they were just outstanding. Then we get to a new third tier. That's where Batman, Dead Man, and Wonder Woman are. Then we get a fourth tier with Supergirl, Green Lantern, and Superman. A fifth tier with Sergeant Rock. And a sixth tier with Teen Titans. Next up, the Demon and Catwoman team-up strip by Simonson and Stelfreeze with Steve Wands. Let's wrap up this Wednesday segment with your recommendations for the week of March 22nd. Arriving in comic stores or through previews, we've, we get the hostage slipcase hardcover from Mercury Comics and from Sal Abenanti. So this was a Kickstarter that is now being offered to stores for $49.99, telling the story of a group of street kids who are abandoned by society. They are dying every day from poverty and gang violence. All, uh, and so these kids join together to summon a mystical spirit who will protect them and avenge the deaths of their friends. And if you've ever listened to a Sal episode on CGS as he talks about this book, uh, it's because of his trips to Brazil and what he saw there, the poverty, and he wanted to write this story. I have this because I supported the Kickstarter. If you do not have this, please, for for everything that Sal has given to the CGS community over the years, in ways that you may not even know about, please support this book. From CEX Publishing, we have Sereno number one. This is by Luciano Vecchio for $5.99. Sereno is the mystic master of light and guardian of New Tea, a city where magic and science intertwine by night. An avatar of collective paranoia, a shepherd of nightmares, and a cult of hate are just the start of an evil conspiracy transforming the city. Can Sereno fight back while keeping super cat burglar Rufian from stealing his heart? A double-sized debut issue. So there was a Superman homage cover that I definitely pulled uh, or pre-ordered. Um, I've been following Luciano since discovering his art on the convention circuit over, geez, probably a decade ago, more than that because he was doing artwork with Rich Bernatovich on the Sentinel series that I really liked. Um, so I had to support this first issue. From Image Comics, we have the Kaya trade paperback by Wes Craig, collecting the five-issue miniseries plus the 16-page prologue that was featured in the Image 30th Anniversary Anthology. I read and talked about um, the first issue of that anthology, plus the story. I remember liking it a lot. Uh, I think I, I th at the time, it was one of the my favorite stories in that first issue. And uh, I just think if you, they say here, you know, if you like Conan, Lord of the Rings, Bone, Adventure Time, you're going to like this story for $9.99. 
From Red 5 Comics, we have The Fallen, issue number one of six, by Matt Ringel and art by Henry Ponciano for $3.95. Centuries ago, the gods were cast out of the heavens and forced to live for an eternity on Earth. Ensconced in the nightlife of 1980s Manhattan, the pantheons have fallen into warring crime families, controlling mankind with illicit dreams and substances. Amid the neon lights and glistening streets, something has begun hunting the gods, and inter-family war is sure to break out, unless private eye Casper Clay can find the hunter and stop him for good. The gods are real, but they are not good. They are fallen. A blend of Miami Vice, neon war mythology, and classic pulp fiction, or of uh, similar to the Michael Mann films, uh, and early Luke Besson, stuff like Diva and Thief. I love me some Greek gods, so I thought that was an interesting premise, so I wanted to talk about that. $3.95 if I haven't said that. And then from Marvel, a new Doctor Strange, number one, first issue by Jed McKay and Pasquale Ferry, which to me is like, yeah, okay, I'll look at it. I really enjoy Pasquale Ferry's artwork. Cover by Alex Ross, $4.99. I don't know how this takes place, you know, because he was dead, and then Cleo was strange, and now he's back again, and uh, this has to do with something about children falling into deep nightmares, and, uh, you know, it's a new chapter in the life of the Master of the Mystic Arts. Outside of the artwork, I think it's also because um, I'm trying to look for new entryways into trying to read Marvel, you know, because there aren't many, Um, but this is a new number one, so I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. So there you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of March 22nd. Just when you thought it was safe to hear a podcast promo. Brave and bold. Comic books. JLMA do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JLMA JLMA do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JLMA JLMA do 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 the annual podcast crossover event celebrating the Justice League is back. And we're covering the 2007 Brave and the Bold series that started with Mark Wade and George freaking Perez and ended with J. Michael Straczynski. Throughout the month of May, participating podcasts will release special episodes on issues in the run. It all kicks off in the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. Follow the event on social media using the hashtag JLMay2023. Coming this May. Make do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 Mephisto. Hey, that it? Is that what you want? The things I do for this show. A thought for Thursday. Can't you understand that if you take a law like evolution and you make it a crime to teach it in the public schools, tomorrow you can make it a crime to teach it in the private schools. And tomorrow you may make it a crime to read about it, and soon you may ban books and newspapers. And then you may turn Catholic against Protestant, and Protestant against Protestant, and try to foist your own religion upon the mind of man. If you can do one, you can do the other, because fanaticism and ignorance 
is forever busy and needs feeding. And soon, Your Honor, with banners flying and with drums beating, we'll be marching backward, backward, through the glorious ages of that 16th century, when bigots burned the man who dared bring enlightenment and intelligence to the human mind. News out of West Reading. Chopper 6 is live over the scene of where Berks County fire crews are there trying to put out the flames of a multi-alarm fire at a West Reading chocolate factory. That chocolate factory is one of the oldest in the country. That fire was reported just before 5 p.m. at the R.M. Palmer Company right at 77 Second Avenue. Now witnesses reported hearing an explosion coming from the candy factory with fire shortly thereafter. The fire spread to multi-alarms, no word yet on injuries, but again, lots of damage and destruction. And there were reports, though, of, of a person trapped and was removed from the rubble. But again, we are looking at uh, the billowing smoke escaping from this very old candy factory here in West Reading. No words of any injuries, but we'll keep an eye on the situation and bring you more information as it becomes available to us. This is a little bit of an odd topic to, to end a digest on. Um, but it is something that hit kind of close to home. So I just felt kind of like the need to talk about this. I don't know if news of what happened and what you just heard, uh, extended to where, wherever you are in the country or wherever you are. Um, but here in Reading and West Reading to be exact, um, there was an explosion at a candy factory called Palmer Candy in their second building. And it happened, you know, just sort of right around late afternoon, like maybe close to five o'clock or somewhere, or maybe a little bit after on a Friday. Um, I'm recording this several days after because I wanted to get a little bit more information. Um, it's possible that it was a gas leak. The investigations are still going on, yet there are some witness testimonies that they smelled gas before the explosion. So... Um, it was a huge explosion. This entire building is gone. Um, and it, uh, as of, of this writing, there are seven people who were uh, killed in the explosion. Um, most of them were missing for a number of days. Um, but uh, right now, the, the number is seven. And I, I believe that's a final number. So I had no idea this explosion happened on that Friday. Uh, my sister was the one who informed me that uh, Palmer Candy had an explosion that leveled the building. It uh, also affected a lot of the buildings around it uh, to the point that there was this like church and some residential homes uh, on one side of it. And the explosion was so powerful, it moved those buildings four feet off their foundation or whatever, which is, that's just crazy. Um, so I was told about this. The reason why my sister told me, the reason why it, it, it was, a, you know, it kind of had an effect on us is because my younger cousin works at Palmer Candy. And uh, also my old, my aunt, uh, she retired from Palmer Candy. So she's no longer working there. But again, I have two family members that could have possibly been affected by this explosion. Um, found out on Facebook that my cousin, uh, she wrote this thing, said that she's fine, um, but that 
10, she said basically something like what, what a difference 10 minutes made in her life. She said, or otherwise it would have been a very different story. Just, just 10 minutes. Again, this is Friday, late afternoon, people are leaving, people are, you know, um, yeah, very, very scary. I mean, Palmer Candy has, uh, a lot of Latinos who work for them. Um, you know, it's a company that has been around in Reading for a very long time. It has people there who have worked there for a long time. Um, it, it just was, uh, scary. It was very scary. And, um, as I said, my cousin is totally fine, but it was very scary to read that. And, and that, you know, she said 10 minutes. That's all it would have been. 10 minutes and, and it would have been a different story. There is a video of the explosion from a Weather Channel camera. It doesn't have a sound, but you can see some of the destruction. And then there is a, uh, a an eyewitness video shortly after the explosion before anybody showed up, before the medic showed up, before, um, you know, the fire station showed up. Um, that shows the destruction. There are some injured people in it. Um, yeah, this is, it's just very scary, right? To just have something like this explode. And some of the people in the early hours and the early days were saying, you know, when you work in a factory like this, there's a lot of, um, residual dust in the air that can be flammable, but I guess, you know, if they're talking about they smelled gas, it sounds like maybe that was the cause, although they don't know just yet. Um, people are out of work now. Um, the community around this, um, factory, uh, is helping out families and anybody that's been displaced by the explosion. A lot of the area is still blocked off, especially to traffic as they kind of continue to work through and people who were affected, whether it was, you know, their windows were smashed in. Um, certainly the noise could be a thing, right? You could, you could burst an eardrum depending on how close you were. Someone said it was the loudest noise they've ever heard because uh, it's a it's a small street and there are some residential houses around there, even though there are some factories as well and some businesses, too. So, yeah, very scary. Um, just, you know, just something you hear about. And then when it's in your your neighborhood, you're like, whoa, or in my in the city, I'm, I'm nowhere near where this was. Um, but you know, as I mentioned, my family does have a connection to, to Palmer candy. So thankful that nothing happened, um, beyond that, but there were some losses, so they're going to have to rebuild and, um, people are being taken care of, which is good. I don't know. I just felt the need to talk about it days later, um, because I was hearing more information and, um, I, I don't, again, I don't know if you heard about this wherever you are, but if you did, yeah, it's kind of weird that there's actually a connection somewhere in there. So, okay, that's it. Um, I never know how to end segments like this because it's, there's, there really is no other point than just kind of, I just wanted to talk about it, or maybe I wanted to mark, um, the event, um, since this podcast is, is, you know, ultimately about things that surround whatever my world is, you know, and this was something that was pretty close to home. So, all right, that's it for this digest. Email me, Peter at the daily Go visit the daily Rios website or the daily Rios Instagram. Go follow me on Twitter, Peter J Rios. 
uh, follow me or review me on your favorite podcast catcher, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Send me some book club recommendations. Send me some promos. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 609 for Saturday, March 25th, 2023. Talk to you soon. I was 25 and I went there as this, you know, this starry-eyed, full of shit college kid who went there as a Brazilian vacation and thought it was going to be samba and nightlife and beaches to see the level of poverty and to see the level of suffering, level of death that these kids have to endure every day. They have nowhere to sleep, they have no place to eat, they have, they have to survive off of begging. There were nobody in capes that were coming to save these kids.